0: Church if you have your bibles if you would open them to 1st Timothy chapter 6 1st Timothy chapter 6 we are finishing our study of 1st Timothy this morning as you turn there though let me remind you of a few things that we've seen kind of recap where we're at this morning because it'll all come together for us in this conclusion uh, Paul is the apostle Paul is writing to uh, a young man named Timothy he's a pastor he's a young pastor and things are tough for him even from Paul's letter, uh, we know a few things about Timothy and the circumstances there. Uh, he's young. There's at least the potential that folks were looking down on him because of that youth, because of his age. Um, Timothy is, is timid. Uh, a couple occasions we see Paul pushing him and, and, and telling him, urging him to take heart. So there's a, t- there's a timidity in, timid, in Timothy um, that, that we can see from the letter. Uh, on top of that, he didn't come from good stock, at least in this day and age, and in the culture that he was living in, he was looked at as sort of a half breed. He had uh, Jewish and Gentile mixed parents, and, uh, and and so that was looked down on. And on top of that, he was sickly. Uh, we hear Paul uh, telling him uh, or reminding him of of some instruction that would help his his stomach. He had this this stomach issue that seemed to be ongoing or wouldn't let up, such that even his mentor in the faith is is uh, instructing him in how that may could, could, could be eased. On top of all of that, he's serving in Ephesus. Now, a little bit about Ephesus, if you remember, it's a pagan city and steeped in, in immorality, the worship of false gods, the worship of false gods through sexual immorality. It's just a very pagan city with a lot of darkness. And, um, and that's the, the context in which Timothy's doing ministry here in Ephesus. And if that were not enough... There's false teachers within the church. So it's dark on the outside with the paganism that's going on in the city. And even on the inside, there are false teachers in the church that are leading people astray because they had shipwrecked their faith, as Paul said. Uh, and if you look back through the, the letter, you see what these men, these, these men who were likely leaders, right? Even possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly even elders, in this church that had started the church with Paul and were dear friends to Timothy at some point previous, and, and now they're 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 teaching false doctrine. And Paul is instructing young Timothy, young, sick, timid Timothy, to confront these brothers and this errant teaching, this doctrine that they're spewing in this church. And so that's what this letter is. It's the Apostle Paul writing young Timothy to give him instruction, to give him an exhortation, guidance in how he should handle these issues. But this guidance, this instruction is very specific, and it had a very specific focus. And I want to remind you, as we've done every week since we've started our study here, there's a theme, there's a a thesis statement. Paul has a, a purpose, and he shows us what that is in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul very clearly says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, so Paul's writing to show Timothy, in the church of Ephesus, and us today, how we should behave as the church, as the household of God, the family of God. You think about the ways he's done that, even to this point. He showed us how to spot false teaching. how to to have a a gauge or a litmus test for heresy, for false teaching. He showed us the importance of prayer and training for godliness. He showed us the role of of women in the church. He's given us qualifications for elders and deacons, the leadership of the church. He's given us instructions for how to care for the various parts of the family, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, widows, slaves, pastors, how you're to care for every part of the body, the family that is the the, the, the church. He's given us the, the dangers of materialism. And how so many have been led astray by, by the lure of materialism. And in, in all of that, Paul's purpose, his thesis, has been made very, very clear. He's showing us how to behave as God's family. And so as the letter ends, you may be wondering, and it would be a good question, what is utmost in Paul's mind? What is of, of primary importance as he's unpacking this idea, as he's given us his thesis, and he's given us all of this truth around that idea? What's, what's in the forefront of his brain? That's a good question because oftentimes we end our, our conversations with what we want to stick, with the thing that we want to, to be heard the loudest or the thing that we want to be remembered or said the clearest. You think about this, and even in the way you end phone call conversations with your loved ones, your family members, right? You have the conversation, you get off the phone, you say, I love you. I'll talk to you later. I love you. Because you want that, those three words to be the last thing that they hear, right? Those are important. Those words are important, so you say them last and most clearly. That's what's going on in our text this morning, Paul's final exhortation, at least in this first letter to young Timothy. And it's going to be the part of the letter where he says this most memorable statement that many of you will will recognize, fight the good fight for the faith. And it sounds a whole lot like what he said in chapter one, if you can remember that far back to when we started this study, he said, strongly engage in battle, Timothy. Timothy. And so at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, at the end of the letter in chapter 6, and, and to us today, Paul is telling Timothy and us in this context in the church today, there is a battle and there is a struggle waging and going on, and you need to engage and fight in this battle, Timothy. Don't back up. You need to realize that there's a battle not only for your faith, but for the faith, the gospel. And so for us as Christians today, we are still in this battle that is still going on. And the quickest way to lose this battle is to put your head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist. Or to retreat from culture and say, well, they can just have it. There's a battle, friends. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a battle of of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And we are still engaged in it. And the exhortation to us today from 1 Timothy is that. Fight for the faith. Fight for the gospel. And so let's jump into the text together this morning. We're going to finish up the letter, verses 11 through 21. You'll notice as I read that I'm going to skip over verses 17 through 19. It's not because those verses are unimportant. It's because we covered them last week. Uh, last week in our, our, uh, our text, our scripture, we were, we were challenged. We were, we were called to understand and consider the dangers of materialism. And so we included verses 17 through 19 last week because they deal with that topic as well. And so this morning we're going to read in, in the entirety of the, the final section there, 11 through 21. But before I do that... Before we read our text, I want us to hear Paul's argument in in one reading, in one section. But before we do that, I want to point out something to you that that should set the tone for us. Look at verse 11. It says, But but as for you, O man of God. (laughs) There's a shift. There's something, there's a reversal that's taking place in what Paul has been describing, right? And you need to see that before we read the exhortation and remember where we've been. He just spent a good deal of time describing the false teachers, Their their conceit, their being puffed up, the division that comes with false teaching, the controversy, the quarrels, the envy, the dissension that follows their teaching. He's been describing that in some detail for us, and even the the lure of of materialism is a connected thing to that. And then here in verse 11, he's saying he's going to shift the focus now from that, from that false teaching, from those false teachers, fully upon Timothy and how he should live. So it has for you, O man of God... Man of God is important here too, and I want to point this out for you before we read the text. This this was a customary title in the Old Testament that that oftentimes we say so flippantly, like I want to be a man of God, I want to be a woman of God, or training people to be men of God. And we we should, those are are good things to say, but this title for for Paul to Timothy was not being used as flippantly as what we would use it today. This is a title in the Old Testament that had significant weight and meaning. You go back to Deuteronomy 23, Moses was the man of God. You go to Nehemiah 12, David was the man of God. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel is the man of God. And you go to 1 Kings chapter 17, you remember Elijah there, and and he resuscitated the widow's son. She says this verbatim, Now I know that you are the man of God. And then Elisha the follower of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was understood to be the man of God. And so, in short, when you see this description in the Old Testament, what Paul's doing here with Timothy, man of God is one who is in God's service, represented God on earth, and spoke on behalf of God in his name. That's the the idea that characterizes this title, man of God. And so when Paul is addressing Timothy here, he is emphatically using this title, but as for you, man of God, He's got Timothy's attention. This will stop Timothy in his tracks, and he's, he's all ears now as he's, well, he's reading, not hearing. <laughs> this is a letter, not an address. The young disciple knew that heavy instructions were about to follow. Paul's using this title. He's, he's, he's pulling him in and saying, listen closely, man of God. And I point that out to you before you even read the text because you need to hear this today, Christian. You need to understand that there is application here for you in this. You represent God to this world. Christ lives in you through his Holy Spirit. He lives in you. You are his representative to a lost world. And, and yes, there's direct application here for uh, pastors and those who would proclaim the word of God, those who would shepherd people, but, but there is application for you here this morning as well as you represent Christ to your workplace, to your family, to your community and neighborhood. And so, so what I'm saying is don't duck when I read the text this morning and think, well, this is just for our pastors. This is just for our elders this exhortation to Timothy. No, it it is for all of us to hear and take to heart, to receive and to ask the Lord to teach us, to convict us where necessary. So let's read the word of God together this morning, church. Starting verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord, church. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Skip down to verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions, what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the word this morning. Pray with me. Father, we need you. We need you to take these words, your words, holy words that were written in times past, inspired by your spirit. We need you to take these words and sear them into our hearts. So God, I pray you would do what I can't. God, you would use my feeble attempts to study and understand this text. Use my feeble mind, heart, and words to communicate this word to your people. God, if now more than ever, we need to understand what this truth is communicating to us. The fight that you've called us to. The war that's waging around us. Embolden your saints. Embolden your peoples to, to live out the gospel in their lives. Spirit, you come and work as we, as we attempt to understand your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give us five words this morning, five words that I think will help us unpack this text. All of them begin with the letter F, if that's helpful. doesn't work out that way in the Greek, but maybe it's a thing that would help you remember them this morning as we're studying in English. So the first one is this, flee. Not like the little insect on your pet or the, the bass player from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but flee. Verse 11, you see this, this idea flee sin. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Well, if you just start reading here, you may wonder what things would he be talking about? What is, he, what is he referring to when he says these things? Well, the things that characterize these false teachers that he just finished describing in the passage from last week in verses three through 10. Remember this false teaching that, that minimizes the gospel, that minimizes the exclusivity of Christ. Remember what they were teaching, because that's important for us. As we hear him urging Timothy to flee these things, we need to understand what these things are. And you remember that they were teaching, legalistically, that Christians should avoid eating certain foods. And they should no longer get married. They should avoid marriage. In chapter 4, this is where Paul explains explicitly what they're teaching. And they should do that, because in, in avoiding these things, these certain things, they would become holy. They would earn or merit or win some type of righteousness. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Holiness only comes when you give your sinfulness to Christ through faith and repentance, and you are given his righteousness, this exchange that takes place in the cross for us as sinners. That's the only way you have any holiness is if you have Christ's holiness. So God forbid that you think you could earn it. That's what he's saying. That's what these false teachers were teaching. And that's what he's he's confronting here with Timothy. He's saying, flee that mess, Timothy. Don't even think about it for a second that you could somehow earn or merit forgiveness or grace or that somehow you could earn or merit righteousness or holiness. The only way you're given it is this substitute that happens in Christ. So flee that, flee that teaching and that thought that minimizes the gospel, but flee petty conversations and quarrels about words, verse 4. That's what he just described in in the chapter we're in, chapter 6. Flee the divisive talk, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6. Flee religious delusion whereby you think that you can somehow uh, gain by godliness, this false godliness whereby you set up this aesthetic lifestyle or a legalistic lifestyle and say, look how holy I am, that that would be gained for you. Flee that idea. Flee materialism, right? Verses 9 and 10, by which some have shipwrecked their faith in the pursuit of, of worldly things, possessions, material things, money. Flee that, Timothy. Flee it. And you may hear that, and you may think, well, Matt, that sounds kind of wimpy, right? Like we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We, God himself resides in those who are his people. And so why in the world would we run? Why not fight? We'll get to fight in a second, and we'll see what that means in more detail. But, but church, don't think that those things are disconnected. Fleeing is often our best, best method of fighting. Those things are not at odds. And here's what I mean. In, in 2 Timothy, we'll get to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 Paul's going to recommend flight, running, as a defense from sensuality. He says, Flee youthful passions, Timothy. Run from them. This isn't the first time that the Bible gives us that warning or that defense, that way of fighting, right? If you remember back to the Old Testament, the patriarch Joseph, in the Old Testament, he was serving under Potiphar, one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And you remember what happens if you remember that story. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph. She makes a pass at him. She offers herself to him in a very clear way in every sense of the word. And what does he do? He runs. He literally runs. He runs away from her. Why? Why would he do that? Well, because he knew any attempt to stay in reason, any attempt to stay in fight, any attempt to win an argument would have been too much. And so he runs. And so to her today, here's the application for you. Maybe you need to hear this exhortation. It's just simply flee. run that that may mean for you that that you need to to turn your phone off and and quit reading the scroll right it it may mean that you need to move your computer to a more public place in your house so you're not tempted to look at pornography it it may mean that you need to get away from certain friends or colleagues at works work because you're you're tempted to gossip when you're around those friends It, it may mean that you literally need to run away from something that may shipwreck your faith and your life That would not be too drastic a step to take, to literally run. (laughs) If you're caught in sin, listen, believer, if you're caught in sin, if there's some secret sin that you've hidden and you've done a good job of hiding it for such a long time, not even your spouse would know about it. If if there's something you're caught in this morning, believer, run from it. But but here's the thing, don't don't just run from sin because you'll run to another one, right? Like if you just run from one habit, you'll, you'll pick up another one. In, in your running, there's some intentionality here. You're running from sin, running from something that's enticing you, but you're running to Christ himself. Find grace and mercy in Christ, a love that, that will captivate your heart and mind in a way that that sin never could have. So run from sin, run to Christ. Let me give you at least three ways that you can think through this as you're thinking about what, 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 what might I need to, to flee or run from. I'll, I'll hit these quickly. Flee sinful actions. I mean, that's, that's the first one that's obvious, right? Like if you're doing something, physically doing something that's sinful, some temptation that you've given in from, into, run from it. Don't entertain it. Don't flirt with it. Don't, 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 don't even for a second think that you can continue this thing. Run from it. Like today, ask Christ by the power of the Spirit living in you to help you resolve to not do that thing. But, but secondly, it, it, sin goes deeper than just our actions, right? And so, so run from sinful desires, If you go back up to 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, you see this exactly what Paul's talking about. It's a desire for riches and for the the love of money. That's the root of all sorts of of evil. That's our desires at work. They're not even actions yet, maybe. Maybe you've not even acted on them, but your heart is longing for them. There's a craving for something that's pulling you away from God. Run from that thing. But then third, there's another layer that that, you have action. I've done something. I'm physically doing something. There's desire where I'm wanting to do something. And there's a third layer that goes even deeper than that, and that's your thought life. Maybe this morning you need to run from some things that you're thinking through and you're wrestling through in your mind. You haven't even gotten to them yet. Every thought. So this this idea of fighting the good fight that we're going to see in a second, it, it boils down to every thought being taken captive in Christ flee the thought that would come up against anything that would be true in the Word of God. So let me give you some examples of the way this works out. So why do we run after materialism, worldly possessions, which is we saw in the, in the passage right before this? It's because somewhere along the way in our thought life, even if for a second, for a moment, we've thought that God is not enough or that he doesn't satisfy or that I need him plus something else for security, for safety, for, for an extra cushion right in my life. Why, why do you lie, right? Why would you say something that's not true? Well, because there's a thought that's went through your head at some point that it would work out better for you if you did this. Even though it's sin, it would work out better in the long run if you said this thing that's not true. So you believe yourself more than you believe what God has said. That's a thought life thing. Why would you give in to sexual impurity? Because you believe that in some way, you've thought at some point that, that purity isn't the best option or best route for you. Why would you give in to doubt or despair? Because at some point you've, you've thought that God's not going to care for you or that his promises are not true or there's at least an exception to his promises in some sense. That, that, that's, a, that's a battle that's waging war in our, in our minds, in our thoughts. Run from those thoughts. Take every thought captive. That's what we're being challenged to do here. And so in every area, flee from the actions, desires, thoughts that would not be in accord with what God has said. Let me move us to our second word in the text. second word is this, Follow. So flee sin, verse 11a, that's the first part of verse 11, as you continue, follow. The Christian life doesn't just consist of, 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 of fleeing, running from certain things. It also means that we would follow hard after other things. And we get that as well. Look at verse 11 and continue in the text with me. It says, pursue or follow righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul's giving us some words here. He gives us six words, but it's not just six random words. They're actually pairings. It's three groups of words, three pairs of words, and they, they summarize for us what it looks like to follow after, to pursue righteousness, the Christian life. So let me, let me hit these real quick for you and show you. Righteousness and godliness. And this covers the, the horizontal and vertical dimensions of our Christian life. Horizontally, we're to act righteously toward one another. We're to love one another. We're to honor one another. In our dealings with one another, there should be uprightness, righteousness in our dealings horizontally. And then vertically, a godly life is what's called for. That's, that's godliness, holiness, when no one else is watching, right? Integrity, doing the right thing when no one but God himself is going to know about it or see it. Godliness. And so in both of those things, with righteousness and godliness, the horizontal and the vertical aspects of our Christian life, those things are observable. They go hand in hand. They work together, and they produce a life that's spoken well of on earth, horizontally, and in heaven by God himself. So follow after that, church. That's something you should pursue, to follow after. As you run from sinful things, follow after righteousness and godliness. The second pairing is faith and love. This is a common pairing that we see often in Paul's letters. Uh, you see them throughout 1 Timothy. This is the fourth time, actually, in this letter. You see it in 2 Timothy. You see it in Titus as well. And the emphasis here, this, this faith and love, yes, it's love for, for, for God. Yes, it's faith in God. But there's, a, there's an outward expression of that. There's an expression of that toward others. In particular, in this letter to Timothy, towards those he's shepherding. Towards those he's been called and tasked with overseeing and caring for. Demonstrate that faith, that love to them, Timothy. And so this morning, if I can just dig a little, who do you need to be intentional this week to demonstrate faith, to your faith too this week. You, love, that's a God-given, spirit-induced love. Who is in this moment, God put on your heart and saying that person needs to see this this week. Maybe it's someone in your home, maybe a child that's difficult and you're just in a parent struggle right now and it's, it's hard. Maybe it's a spouse that sinned against you. Maybe it's a coworker at work that maybe even because of the stuff that's went on this week with the election, you know it's gonna be hard on Monday morning. And you know right now, if you would be honest and vulnerable for the Lord and ask the Lord to convict you and show you that this morning, right now, the Lord's putting somebody on your heart and mind that this week you're to demonstrate that kind of faith and love in front of this week. Run after that. Pursue that. And then he says steadfastness and gentleness. This last pairing is especially vital for us today. In the context of this letter, you think about the, the things that Paul has already shown us in this letter as he's writing to Timothy. These things are invaluable. To a young pastor who's shepherding a church with heresy on the inside and pagan uh, idolatry on the outside, he needed steadfastness, and he needed gentleness, and we do as well, church. The steadfastness just says, I won't quit, right? In the face of opposition, when, when, the, when I'm being attacked on account of the gospel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep plowing. I'm going to keep my head down and trust the Lord with steadfastness. And then gentleness is this idea of, of tender, patient, self-control, in dealing with the difficult people that, that Timothy was shepherding. I need both of these. You need both of these, church. In in the cultural moment that we live in, you need steadfastness to trust the Lord, to keep focused on Christ no matter what may be thrown at you. And you need gentleness to have hard conversations, to have gospel conversations in a culture that doesn't want to hear the gospel. You need gentleness. He needs steadfastness. And so these three groupings that Paul gives us are, are incredible, but what's really striking to us is the contrast that he paints with them, right? Flee sinful things, follow after, pursue righteous things. Here's the irony, church, is that as flawed human beings, even as Christians who are still wrapped in flesh, we often do the exact opposite. We, we pursue things that end in disaster, and we turn our backs on the things that would bring joy and fullness and the wisdom of the scriptures, the wisdom that the Holy Spirit would have for us this morning is so simple. John Stott summarized it in this way in his commentary. He says this, we are to simply run from evil as if we're running from danger. And we're to run toward, run after goodness as if we're running towards success or joy. That is, we have to give our mind, our time, and our energy to both flight, fleeing, running from things, and pursuit. And pursuit. And so, church, as we summarize these first two words, flee, flee, and follow, let me just ask you, what are you running from, and what are you running toward this morning? As you evaluate, as you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, what are you running toward, and what are you running from, even right now, in your walk with Christ? Number three, the third word on our list this morning, fight. Fight. This comes in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. You know, church, we're all willing to go to blows over something. Every one of us in here will go to blows and we'll fight for something, be it family, spouse, job. And I'm not saying that those things are not things to fight for. We should take those responsibilities and those stewardships serious uh, in, a, in a serious way. We're all willing to go to fight to fight over something. And here's what Paul is saying very specific there is a fight. <laughs> To fight. And it's not just any fight, it's a very specific fight. And he's showing us which hill it is that, without a doubt, believers, Christians that have professed the name of Christ, the hill on which to die. As Christians, we are called to fight the good fight of the faith. And this is the point that Paul's been building on this entire letter. When you think about what he said about us as the family of God, as the household of God, the the ones that have been knit together as a family, it's because of the gospel, it's because of the faith. And all of that has been building to this point that Paul says all of it hinges on this fight for that, Timothy. Fight for that. And you think about the ways he's described this that he's to fight for the faith that some have wandered away from. Chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 21. That he's to fight for the gospel, that which is essential. He's referred to it as truth in chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 3, verse 15, in chapter 4, verse 3. That he's to fight, that Timothy is to fight for what Paul has called the teaching or the doctrine, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. That Timothy is to fight for what Paul has said has been entrusted to him. He's called it the deposit. That's chapter 6, verse 20. So what is all of that? What is this truth, this doctrine, this essential teaching? What is this deposit that he's referring to, this thing that he's been entrusted with? It's the gospel, church. It's the only way by which sinful men and women can be made right with a holy God. It's the gospel. It's the good news that that, that we are sinners, that we are utterly depraved and sinful people, that we are rightly and justly under the wrath of a holy God. And that God's not being mean and picking on us for that. He is holy, right, and ruler, and we've rebelled against him. And because of that, his wrath is on us. But God, but God in his great love and mercy sent his son as a substitute to die in our place, to take our sin in his body. And in so doing, he has nailed that, that, that certificate of death that was against us. He's nailed it to the cross. That truth that in his resurrection, there is now resurrection life for anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That truth, that precious truth, the gospel is the truth worth fighting for. That we go to blows for. That we risk our very lives for if, it, if the time and the circumstances call for it. It's that precious truth. That's the truth that in every day and age, believer, men and women have been, been called to, to fight for. And so in your life. Believer, this morning, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace, in, in, in our culture, in this community, it's worth fighting for. And we would say that the, the, the gospel is that thing that is the hill on which to die. And Paul says, Fight the good fight of the faith. When he says that, he's talking about voluntary, athletic agony. Now, I wish I was smart enough to have come up with that on my own. That's uh, Kent Hughes in his commentary. He says that's the way that you would describe this fight, this good fight. Voluntary athletic agony. Here's what it means it means that in other places, Paul's used the image of a race or a boxer, someone who's boxing, or someone who's in the military, or someone who's farming. And in each of those, the idea is that there's a grueling endeavor, it's a hard work, it's a labor, but it's something that you signed up for and that you're committed to seeing completed, finished, done. And I'm not a runner. you guys know that. You can look and tell. It's quite obvious. I'm not a runner. But from those that are runners, especially distance runners, you know that there's this ascension this where you can vouch for this, that, that you run until you feel like you can't run anymore. And right when you hit that wall, you keep putting one foot in front of the other and you just keep running. You literally just keep going. It, it, it's an indescribable thing. I used to run a long time ago. That's <laughs> one reason I would know that. I'm also not a fighter. I'm not a boxer. I like to watch good fights, and one of the things you see in a good fight is that those fighters are literally giving every ounce of effort and energy and exertion that they have, literally going toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow, until they can't lift their their hands anymore, can't lift their gloves anymore. That's the image here, That, that we as believers have been called into a battle, into a fight, and we are to wage war and battle for that precious truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, pushing us to risk it all if necessary. And here's the thing, church. Paul didn't just say this. It's like a hoorah speech to Timothy or for us today. And just leave it, you know, pep rally talk, coach talk. No, he lived it out. He gave us the example of this in his own body. Paul, at the end of his life, at the very end where he writes this second letter, he says this, for I am already being poured out. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's the way he described the end of his life, church. And that's how my prayer for each and every one of us is, is when we are at the end, that we could look back and say that that's true of our life as well. We fought the good fight. We finished the race. It's been the call of every Christian of every generation. And if you think about that, it's not just Paul and it's not just a call and a charge for our day. We stand in line, a legacy of saints that have been called to this same battle and have given their lives for this same precious truth. If you think back to the Protestant Reformation in Germany, the, the, the reformer Martin Luther is put on trial. And he's put on trial for teaching, writing the simple gospel truths that were justified by faith alone in Christ and not the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And he's put on trial and standing on trial, knowing that his life was at risk. This is what Luther said. Unless I'm convicted by the scripture and by plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils because they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Do you hear the resolve in that? Do you you hear a man that sounds like he is committed to laying it all on the line for that which is most important? He's fighting the good fight. You get to the English Reformation under the reign of Bloody Mary, who uh, you've probably read or watched movies or, or shows about, who is trying to restore England to Catholicism. And Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they're arrested for standing up and teaching Protestant doctrines of the faith, for teaching the gospel. And they're tried and they're sentenced to die by being burned at the stake. And literally as they're chained together, Latimer and Ridley together at the stake, beside one another, locked arms, and the flames are literally crawling up their legs as they're being burned alive, Latimer seeks to to bring comfort to Ridley, his colleague, and his brother in Christ. And he says this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England that I hope, by God's grace, is never to be put out. And it's true. You're here today because that flame is still burning. And so here at church, hear a willingness to fight and even die for this precious deposit that we so often take for granted and resolve today to do what it is that you've been called to do. And whatever that looks like, right now in our cultural moment in this country, whatever persecution may be coming, right? I hear this a lot right now as Christians saying, you know, the the trajectory and the way things are turning is that, that, that our country is headed towards persecution for Christians. And I, I see this, and I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, isn't that exactly what Paul's saying here in First Timothy? Why is that surprising to you? I think what's more surprising to me is when I read the Bible and when I think about church history, that we've went for as long as we have without persecution. That's what's more surprising, because that's the norm for most believers in church history, and since the time this was written, that they were literally called to put their lives on the line for this precious deposit that Paul's saying, Timothy, it's been entrusted to you. That's a hill to die on, brother. And so I think that's the call for us to well. The question is not whether it will come. The question is what will you do when it does? Set your resolve to live and to die, if necessary, for this precious truth. It's no less urgent. The call is no less clear, nor is it no less urgent than it was in Timothy's day. Fight the good fight of the faith. Don't take for granted the baton that's been passed to you and the ones that have died so that you get it. And run your part of the race and fight the good fight the deposit that you were given. Fourth word in our text. Fasten. Fasten onto eternal life. Continue verse 12. It says this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now this is a bit confusing, or could be, because Timothy's already saved, right? (laughs) He's born again. He's evidenced eternal life. He's been living for Christ. He's put his faith and trust in Christ. He's shepherding a church. So why in the world would Paul be telling him to take hold of eternal life, something that he already has? Well, the emphasis here is not upon gaining something he doesn't have, eternal life. The emphasis is upon the quality of the life that he currently is living, right? You have to see this in the text, meaning that for those of us who are in Christ, including Timothy, eternal life has already begun. It's not something you're waiting on, Yes, we're waiting on the the fulfillment, the the completion of it, the the consummation of that life when Christ returns and restores all things, and we're in that new heaven and new earth for all eternity, the the eternity we just sang about. Yeah, we're waiting for that day. But if you are in Christ already, right now, in this moment, you have real, what Paul says is true life. So he's calling Timothy, fasten your life around that truth. This is what Jesus explained in John 17, verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life. That you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life is a present possession and a future hope. And so here's the thing, church. You, you need to take hold of that and grab onto that. Fasten your life around that. Because here's the thing. If, if, if suffering is coming, and we are to believe it, it is at some point. We don't know when. But you have to imagine at some point it is. And if we're to fight for the gospel, and we should, according to what we just read in the text, then you need this truth in order to do that. Take hold of, fasten your life around this reality, the reality of eternity, what you have in Christ. And then you'll see, as this world goes strangely dim, what does it matter? What persecution or suffering comes? Take hold of it. In the Greek, this word, take hold, it's, it's a verb. We take hold of three words in the English is one word in the Greek. And it's this idea of grab or snatch or, 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 or hold onto. And often with violence. It might sound strange, but we see this word a little more clearly in the Gospels. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus and Peter walking on water together. And Peter takes his eyes off and he begins to sink. And Jesus grabs him. You can picture the violence with which he snatches him from the water, right, as he's sinking. Again, in Acts chapter 21, the crowds were trying to seize Paul and drag him uh, away from the temple. And it's the same word that's used in both of those cases. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And when you get that picture, that image of those two scenes in your mind, it helps us to understand how you have eternal life in Christ. You've been born again. Your sin's forgiven. You will spend eternity with him. Now grab onto that, seize that truth, fasten your life around it, and go through whatever Christ calls you to go through for the, for the sake of this gospel, this precious truth. Number five, fifth word in our, our text, fulfill. Fulfill your calling. And this is where all this argument comes to a point, comes to a head. He says this. Read with me in the text. I charge you. Here come the witnesses. Right, This is a court scene. He's going to charge him, and there are going to be witnesses watching. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here's the charge. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The charge revolves around whatever this commandment is in verse 14. This commandment that he is supposed to keep. Keep the commandment. So what is that? What is this, this, this charge and what is this commandment that he's to keep? Well, it's the thing that Paul's been getting at for this entire letter. It's not a list of commandments, like the Ten Commandments, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's a command. It's the one thing that's of first importance. It's the proclamation of the gospel. And watch how this plays into everything. Remember, he's, he's arguing, his thesis is that we're the family, the household of God. right? And as we are, everything we do should be to display and propel to proclaim the gospel. So in the way that we care for widows, in the way we care for one another, in the way that you care for your, your elders, in the way that you hold up truth, in all of these things, it's a demonstration and a display of the gospel. So that thing, that commandment, Timothy, that you've been charged with, hold it up. Keep the commandment. This is our charge. This is our calling. And here's the thing. Timothy's commandment and his charge from Paul is the same as ours today. Guard the good deposit. Protect the good deposit, the gospel itself. And the gospel is one of those things. Listen close, church. The gospel is one of those things that the way you guard it, the way that you protect it, is by indiscriminately giving it away. Do you see that? This is what Paul's calling him to do. Give it away. Because in giving it away and proclaiming it to everyone and putting it on display before everyone, that's exactly what you're doing. It will go. It will be like a fire that is fanned into flame. It will be protected. It will be guarded as many people begin to believe and profess faith in Christ. We are recipients of that today. And so the call is no different today. This is not just a call for preachers, for someone who standing stand behind a pulpit. This is our duty that, that the Lord has put it on us to protect and guard this deposit by giving it away. So in this moment, I ask the Holy Spirit, who are you calling me to do that with this week, Jesus? Who should I be giving this, entrusting this deposit to this week? You say, well, Matt, that's hard. It's going to change family gatherings. If I start telling my, my aunts and uncles and grandparents about Jesus, it's going to make family gatherings weird. Thanksgiving and Christmas are going to be strange this year. It's worth it. It's gonna make work a little more awkward. I'm gonna have to sit next to this guy at the cubicle at work. It's gonna be strange. It's worth it. It's gonna make, it's gonna make the commute longer if, if I open up and share my testimony and share my faith with this guy, and then we gotta ride home together. Like, it's gonna make it's gonna make things hard and difficult. I might get made fun of, I might get ridiculed. It's worth it. It's worth it. And and if you don't think it's worth it, Paul answers that question for us too. But look how he does it. Look if you continue in the text. Not only does he show us it's worth it, he does it by singing. <laughs> This is the third time in six chapters that Paul has burst out into song. He just can't help himself, right? Like You you see that. that This is an indicator of your love and affection for Jesus, that you just can't help singing his name. You can't help bragging on how good he is. You can't help but testify in in who he is and what he's done for you. You just can't help sing. That's what Paul does for the third time in our study of 1 Timothy. Look Look at his song. Look at his anthem of worship, verse 15. He who is blessed and only sovereign... The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one's ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Think about it in just short two verses, in two short verses that, that make up this song, this, 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 this anthem of praise for Paul, think about all the ways it informs our theology. His rule is universal. He's blessed and the only sovereign one. Sovereign over everything. His reign is invincible. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. No one can match him. No other ruler rivals him. He's unrivaled in power. He's immortal, verse 16. Meaning that he's beyond and above time itself. That there's no time which he's not been. There's no time where he will not be. He's eternal. He's unapproachable. That he lives in this atmosphere of blinding light. He's inconceivable. No one can fathom his greatness. He's utterly transcendent. So whatever you think in your highest thoughts about God, it's not even close to who he is. He's utterly above anything we can imagine. He possesses all power. He deserves all praise, which is how verse 16 ends. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Man, what a great God we serve. And so when you put all that into perspective, that's who Christ is, that's who we're worshiping. Is it worth it? It's absolutely worth it. The calling, the awkwardness, the ridicule, Whatever may come our way on account of living out this gospel and proclaiming this gospel, it's worth it because of who he is. Based on that truth, look what he says next. "Oh Timothy, guard the good deposit. Entrusted to you, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's what he's saying. Timothy, fulfill your calling. Whatever the risk, whatever you endure as a result, whatever the strain, whatever the cost, Jesus is worth it. Fulfill your calling. I told you there were five words this morning that began with the letter F. I want to give you a sixth one, though, as we end. It's kind of two words. Fear not. Fear not. You'll see this in the text. And here's the thing. When we have texts like this that are hard, passages that that, that clearly the stakes are high, and we're called to engage in battle, and Paul's putting it all on the line here. He's giving us some heavy and weighty instructions. He's charging Timothy to literally wage war, to battle for the gospel. We need those clarion calls. We need those clear commands from Scripture. But there's a possibility, and here's why I end this way, church. There's a possibility that we can hear a passage like this, hear a sermon like this, and respond in the exact opposite way that we should. Here's what I mean. It's tempting to hear a passage like this and just walk away thinking, well, I just need to try harder. I just need to work more. I need to strive longer. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps and give more effort. And if I do that, maybe I can please God because that's what he wants from me. He wants me to work harder. He wants me to say more. He wants me to go harder and longer. And if that's our response, we've missed it. We've missed it entirely. We've missed it completely. That breeds fear. That breeds anxiety because it's upon us to do better. And if that's what we take from this passage, we're literally doing the exact thing that Paul warned Timothy about in the church of Ephesus. We've made it about us and our work, our effort. It hinges on us doing more or doing better or striving harder. And that's what Paul was condemning in Ephesus. And so don't miss this church in the last four words of the letter. Fear not. Why? Look at the last four words. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Did you hear that? The most precious five-letter word in all the world, that God loved you at your worst. When you deserve nothing but wrath and judgment, that's grace that he poured out his love and mercy on you. That God pours out blessing upon you. He pours out his love upon you. He took your place. He sent his son to die in your stead. That's grace. There's no fear. There's no anxiety there. That God blessing you with, with even material things, verse 17, for your enjoyment. That's the grace that he would do that. Leverage those things for him. Not because you want to earn his favor or merit. Not because you want to earn a benefit or gain by some holiness. because Precisely because he's already purchased that for you. Grace be with you. That's where Paul ends this letter. The whole letter to Timothy. Fear not. There's no anxiety here. No more striving. Grace be with you. And so maybe you're here this morning. and that's, That needs to be the, two, the, the, the four words that you hear as you leave these room, this room. Maybe you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you've never repented of your sins and experienced this grace, this infinite, unmerited love where Christ has died in your place. Come to him today. Repent of your sins and say, Jesus, I trust that your death on the cross was in my place. Maybe you're here this morning and you just need to rest. Like anxiety is up to here and the striving and the effort. And, and, and even hearing a text and a sermon like this, you're thinking, it's just, it's just too much, it's crushing. It is. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. Christ has achieved in your place what you could never achieve. Rest in him. And so whatever the case may be, you, you respond to the text, to the word of God this morning as the Holy Spirit leads you. Let's pray together. Father God, we need, even in this moment as I pray, a greater and better understanding of your grace a greater and better understanding of the gospel, the deposit that was entrusted to us. And so God, for each person under the sound of my voice on this campus this morning, God, I pray they would rest in your grace. And as they rest in your grace, that we would live out these imperatives, these truths, this call that we've been called, the battle that we've we've signed up for and that you've called us into. That by your grace, you would sustain us in that battle. God, help us to risk it all for the sake of King Jesus. Not to earn your love, but precisely because you've already lavished it on us. So God, I pray for Poplar Spring that you would knit us together in love and unity as a family, as a household of God. Help us to care for one another, shepherd one another. Draw us to to Christ and help us to look more like Christ daily. God, if there's one here that's never trusted you for salvation, God, I pray today would be the day that they say, I'm yours, King Jesus. Forgive me of my sins they place their faith and trust in you, and that from this day forward, eternity is changed. God, help us to fasten and hold on to that which is ours in Christ, life, true life. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.